Ready? Let's go. Give me a vacation. Vacation. Give me a golf course. 70 courses. Let's get a water sport. Can I get excursions? We're watching. Time for chill vibes. Beach yoga. How about a garden tour? Give me a dolphin. What's that spell? San Diego. If you're happy and you know it, San Diego is the place to show it. Book your trip at san diego.org. Funded in part with the City of San Diego Tourism Marketing District Assessment Funds. What's up? This your boy, Lil Duval. And check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Looking to step up your Mother's Day flowers? The Home Depot has an idea. Let mom's green thumb do some digging with colorful flowers, pots, and premium soils to bring out the most in her patios, walkways, and gardens. Right now, get Vigoro Potting Soil, just $8.97 for strong, healthy, vibrant plants indoors and outside. Shop our wide selection online and pick up your order in-store and give mom the gift of a beautiful garden. Get Vigoro Potting Soil, just $8.97 at The Home Depot. How doers get more done. Welcome to Food 360, the podcast that serves up some serious food for thought. I'm your host, Mark Murphy. Today, I want to welcome an icon in the culinary world. And I'm also lucky enough to call her my friend, Ruth Reichel. So first, I guess we're going to do this officially. We're going to introduce Ruth Reichel, who is author, writer, editor, chef, and now I'm lucky enough to call you my friend as well. Well, I, I would make one change in that. I am not a uh, chef. Well, I mean, I'm a cook. I, I'm a you're cook. a cook. Okay, we'll call you a cook. But you've, uh, you're, you're. I, I don't know. I feel like you're so important in the chef world that we should give you that title as well. <laughs> yeah, but then you can okay. laugh at me, my knife skills. I mean, I'm just a home cook. Okay. Uh, well, but I, I'm very I, happy to be your friend. I have yes. to say. And and I have to say, you know, I I we had met before, and I know we had sat at certain like dinners here and there, and been knew of each other, I think, as the years went by in the in, in this industry. But uh, it was our trip to Israel that really sealed the deal for us to be able to really get to know each other. That was that was such an amazing trip. I mean, it was it was not only an amazing it was amazing for me in a lot of ways. Well, one was obviously seeing a beautiful country, which we've got to experience together. But one was making new friends, really making, you know, solidifying some friendships. Yeah. And, you know, there's nothing like traveling with people. You get to know people in a completely different way. I mean, you're in this little bubble together for a week and you get to know people in a way you would just never if you just sort of, you know, met them. I mean, spending 24 hours a day together is uh, (laughs) it's intense. And you were Nancy Silverton's roommate for that trip, who also is an amazing person. Yes, she is. And um but I, I knew Nancy really well going into that. So, yeah. I, um, you know, Nancy and I have traveled together a lot. We've shared hotel rooms a lot. Uh, <laughs> I've lived at her house uh, for long periods of time. Okay. So there, there, were, 
There were no revelations there. Yeah. Okay, well, there you go. I mean, for me, it was a revelation getting to know the two of you. And it was great because, you know, whenever we sat down together, it was a bottle of white wine and a bottle of red wine because you each like your own colors of wine, which is very funny. That's exactly right. It, it was, It was. I finally got about halfway through the trip when I knew you guys were coming. I would order, I was like, a glass of red and a glass of white. This. The ladies need their drinks because we've had a long day. True, <laughs> But I got to say, the, 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 the revolution of food in Israel, was, I think, is just, uh, it's just beautiful. The, 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 the bounty that was flourishing at the markets, the, 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 the melting pot of cultures coming together, um, it, was, it was really, uh, it was eye-opening for me. And the products. I mean, the produce there is so amazing. And I mean, remember that day we went to Hadai's farm? And oh. everything had come within from like within two miles of where we were. And there was just this incredible spread. There were like 60 dishes on the table and cheese that they had made themselves and fish from the local stream and like every fruit and vegetable you can imagine. Remember all those pickled, that pickled fish that they made as well, the smoked fish and the pickled fish. Oh, it was just, it was all incredible. Yeah. And you thought, okay, you know, this was the Garden of Eden. Now I get it. <laughs> exactly. So, you know, when I got back from that trip, I, I'm, I have to admit, I, I don't read as much as I should. And as soon as I got back, I think I went and bought every one of your books. Uh, and I'm sorry, I didn't, I know, I know there's a lot of your books, but it, it, I think the first one I, I, I dove into um, was probably Save Me the Plums after the, you know, the whole story about being at Gourmet Magazine, which I found immensely, um, you know, I was around during that time. I was a chef in a restaurant during that time and obviously read the magazine. I think was even reviewed once in the magazine. Um, and, and it was just so amazing to read your story of, of, uh, of your experience. And, and it's, and it was just, I don't know, it was just very moving for me. Well, you know, I mean, for me, more than anything, I mean, there were two things about that. And one is that those days of those kinds of magazines are over. Um, it was another world. I mean, I really had the good fortune of working for the last publisher in America who really believed, you know, if you give people the best journalism you possibly can, they will pay for it. And so they let us do anything we wanted. But it was also, other than this particular moment of time, the moment when American food was really undergoing a lot of changes. And we got to chronicle that, you know, which was wonderful. Um, and, um, you know, I, that time is not coming again. And it's it's interesting. I mean, I, I honestly, I feel like you, you you really stepped into that role at the perfect time for you, probably in your career. It was probably you were so you, you, so much was going on. I mean, having having something like that now obviously doesn't even it barely touches it. Doesn't scrape the surface of what's happening. I think in the magazine world. I mean, what you got you guys got to do was pretty pretty earth shattering. Well, I think. you know, I mean, I just said to them, look. Um, this is a moment of real change in American food, and we should be chronicling that. And just writing about, you know, restaurants and recipes doesn't cut it anymore. People want to know wh where does the food come from, who's picking it. Um, we want to talk about, you know, women in restaurants, and we want to talk about gender. And I mean, I honestly believe that food is kind of everything. 
You know, I mean, if you don't pay attention to food, you're not paying attention to the world. And that there's nothing you can't write about through the lens of food. And I just wanted to expand what a food magazine could be. And, you know, to my delight, they sort of said, you go, girl, do whatever you want. Well, that's kind of funny because when I when I went to iHeartRadio and I said I wanted to do a podcast, I said they said, "Well, what are the topics?" I said, "Well, everything because everything touches food." I I everybody hates it when I use the example, but even the carting company is part of the food chain because they got to get the garbage from the waste of the restaurants. You have the the farmers. You have uh, you, it's just you have the architects that have to design the restaurants. So the flow and well, I mean, obviously now all that's might may be changing a little bit now. Um, there's going to be a lot of changes and I'm sure that, you know, we're going to get back to normal, but yes, I think there's, you're absolutely right. Everything touches food. The one thing that I found most interesting during this whole, uh, you know, this whole lockdown that's happened, I have a little garden and I was going to buy seeds. It's hard to find seeds. And then I thought, Hey, I'm going to build a little chicken coop. I have the time. I have nothing to do. And then I read an article that they said, when the stock market goes down, Seeds and the, the hatcheries that hatch the little chickens are the two things that sell out the quickest. I was so amazed at this, that all of this is going on. And that was, this, that was this, an article that I read about what was going on. I was like, wow, that's really weird. Well, I mean, I actually think this is a, a moment of the greatest change, certainly in my lifetime. I mean, I don't think we're going back to normal. I don't think normal is ever going to be the same. Um, I think, you know, there are so many things that are wrong with the way the food system was. And this is pointing it out. You know, I mean, um, you know, why are restaurants having so much trouble? Well, because, you know, the entire American food system has run on the back of undocumented people and that's not right. And, um, you know, we're, we're starting to see, you know, that farmers are, are squeezed in ways that they shouldn't be, that, you know, Americans are, are addicted to really cheap food. We have the cheapest food in the world. We're addicted to it. But um, that doesn't work in the long run. And that's what we're seeing. Yeah, and I think uh, Gabriella Hamilton really, I think, nailed it in that article she wrote in the Times recently. I think that, that you know this this was kind of broken before this happened, and I know it. I mean, I had I had five or six restaurants at a moment, and now I'm down to zero. I I luckily got out of the business uh, right before all this happened, a couple months before, and 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 I was seeing it. I mean, I had restaurant. I had a 300 seat restaurant. I was doing you know 12 million dollars in sales, and I, there was it was hard to find a profit at the end of the day. I'm like, something's wrong here. That I'm we're all working this hard and not making a profit at the end of the day. It's really difficult. And and it came down to really looking at the model. It was either you chain or handcuffed yourself to a little store and you were the chef, the manager, the dishwasher, the cook, the everything you could make a living, or you had to get involved in one of these huge chains that had 30 or 40 restaurants that then had this sort of this cream on the top of their company that had all the lawyers and the and, and the legal and the, the the beverage directors and all these other people that, that would sort of run it all and and it, it was just it, it was sort of hard to find a middle in between where it was comfortable to work right and then you you do that all the way down the line you know i mean farmers are squeezed in the same way fishermen i mean right now fishermen are in such trouble because 85 percent of all the seafood in america is sold in restaurants people don't really cook fish at home so the fishermen are you know, their, their boats are sitting empty and they still got to pay the boats off. And, um, you know, nobody's buying 
lobsters and clams and oysters right now. I know. And I, I've been seeing that and I've been meaning to order some oysters because I love one of the things that I learned. One of the first things I learned in a restaurant was how to shuck an oyster. And I got to tell you, I loved it. It was just it was one of those things like, wow, this is it's hard, but it's not that hard. And it's, you can do it once you learn how to do it. It's it's easy. Yeah, well, I actually have oysters coming on Friday. <laughs> well, lucky you. How are you making? How are you making your oysters? Are you just eating them raw? I just eat them raw. I mean, I, I, I'm real purist on that. You know, I mean, I like my lobster just boiled. I don't like a lot of stuff done to it. I like right. my oysters just open them and eat them, steam the clams. Um, you know, when you, get, when you get really great food, you really don't want to mess with it too much. Yeah, I like I like the product to tell me what I'm going to do with it, and sometimes it is just leave me alone. Not, I, I have some clams coming actually, and I'll tell you, just steam those open with a little white wine and some 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 thyme or something like that, and that's it. That and a crusty piece of bread, I am happy. I'm happy as a clam. <laughs> Ready? Okay. Give me a beach. Beach. Give me great food. Tacos. Give me adventure. Hiking. Give me a date night. Sunset cruise. Give me some smiles. Cheese. Give me more beaches. Beaches. What's that spell? San Diego. If you're happy and you know it, San Diego is the place to show it. Book your trip at san diego.org. Funded in part with the City of San Diego Tourism Marketing District Assessment Funds. The Home Depot wants every mom to have their own outdoor oasis this Mother's Day. Whether that be a new space to relax or a beautiful garden upgrade, at The Home Depot, you can give mom a gift that's as unique as she is with a stylish and comfortable place to entertain or relax for the mom who does it all. And with convenient delivery, you won't have to stress over getting it to her either. Looking to step up your Mother's Day flowers for the mom who's great with gardening? Let mom's green thumb do some digging with colorful flowers, pots, and premium soils to Bring out the most in our patios, walkways, and gardens with the Home Depot's Mother's Day Savings Event happening now. Get Vigoro Potting Soil, just $8.97 for strong, healthy, vibrant plants indoors and outside. Start your Mother's Day shopping and saving today by checking out the Home Depot's extensive selection online at homedepot.com or directly in-store near you with convenient pickup and delivery options. See homedepot.com slash delivery for details. The Home Depot, how doers get more done. This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu.
Um, I wanted to talk to you really quickly because I remember I texted you after, obviously, we, we, we traveled in, in Israel together. I went and I bought a bunch of your books and I was devouring them. And your first novel that you wrote, Delicious, which I don't remember now if I read it before the, the, uh, the one about gourmet, but, but it was so much, wait, there was so many things going on there uh, that I loved. And uh, Lulu, Billy, and Sammy, the characters that you had, the description of the, the, the shop where she worked. I literally, and I think I, I went back to my text and I looked at it. I said, I got up at five o'clock in the morning to finish the book because I was so, uh, I was so emotional about these characters and this book. And I was literally weeping and getting a little emotional now just talking about it with you. But those characters were so well developed and so, there was such a beauty about every one of them and that whole story in the attic where they were locked. And it was just, oh my gosh. And, and it, it, have you, are you writing more novels? or what? I, am writing, that was... I am working on a novel now, actually. Yay! Um, <laughs> um, it's set in Paris in the 80s, but um, one of the characters is old and so he remembers Paris in the 20s. So, um, you know, I mean, it, I just... Um, I sort of wanted to spend time in the Paris past, so I decided to put myself there. I mean, it was kind of like with Delicious, something kind of magical happened for me, which was um, when I, the, after Gourmet closed, I, I had to go on book tour for the Gourmet Cookbook, which was very weird because the magazine was closed and there I am and everybody's weeping about the end of the magazine. And I finally come back to the now completely empty Gourmet offices and I have to pack up and everybody's gone and it's, it's, it's a, a scene of utter devastation. And it was so depressing that I ended up going into, we had a library, and I ended up going into the library um, just to sort of be among books and friends and in a place that wasn't full of um, broken chairs and torn up photographs. And um, I saw this, it was a filing cabinet that I had never noticed in there, way in the back. And I went, I thought, God, you know, I wonder what's in there. And I went in and it was like every letter that Gourmet had ever gotten in its 70 years. And I thought, this is a treasure trove. It's gonna be a great history of American food. And of course, what it was, was mostly complaints. You know, (laughs) this recipe didn't work and, um, and, and recipes that people sent in. And I thought, God, if I had time to go through this, these 70 years of letters, I'm sure I would find great stuff. But instead, and I will never know why I did this, but I went back into my office and instead of packing, I sat down at the computer and I started writing the letters I wish I had found. And it was like Lulu just came to me. And, you know, James Beard had worked at at Gourmet and so I had this, you know, little girl writing letters to James Beard during World War II about the food and trying to learn to cook. And it just, I mean, it really was, you know, if you're very lucky as a writer, sometimes you get the, this little magic thing that happens. And so I wrote um, like four years of letters from Lulu to James Beard 
just wishing that that's what I'd found in that filing cabinet. And then I, you know, sent them off to myself and packed up my office and left. And that became the basis for that book because Lulu, I mean, she literally just appeared to me. Is this, you know, this great little girl. Wow. That, that, that is amazing. I love, I love that story. And as I said, I, I love the book. I might have to go back and read it again because it was just, I, I don't know. I just got so caught up with all those characters and everybody in it. It was really, really wonderful, but it was, uh, it, that, that, that's amazing. But so now you're writing one about Paris in the eighties. And now I'm just trying to think, I think maybe was I 70, I might've been there. I guess maybe it was late eighties. I was cooking. I was cooking in a one-star Michelin restaurant in Paris at that time. What restaurant? I was cooking at a place called Le Miraville. Ah, and I, it, it was—it was really interesting. It was right behind, right by the, uh, right behind the Hotel de Ville, right near the Pont Louis Philippe. And I had moved to Paris, uh, and I had been working at Prefix for Terence Brennan. And then I had packed my bags. I was David Pasternak was my sous chef and Joey Fortunato. And David, at one point, after about a year and a half, he says, you've learned everything you need to learn here. You need to get out and go work somewhere else. So I packed my bags and I called a friend of mine who lives in Paris. I have a French passport. So I thought I'm going to go work in Paris. I went and bought the Michelin Guide. I started out at the Place des Vosges and knocked on the door for Chef Paco at, uh, at, Lombo- at uh, Lomboiserie. And I asked him for a job and he thought I was completely off my rocker. This American kid who speaks French wants a job at my restaurant. He said, the youngest cook in my rest in my kitchen has been here for 14 years. He goes, but here's the names of some other people you should go ask if for a job. And I ended up going to work with this guy, Gilles Pierre, Le Miraville, and Jean-Pierre Brault was the sous chef. And I worked there for almost a year and a half, almost two years, and I was going to leave and they asked, begged me to stay because it was going to be time to... You know, everybody's going to take vacation. I was the only one who knew the whole kitchen. The sous chef was taking off. And it was it was one of those magical times in my life. I would walk to work. I, I was paid, I think, 5,000 francs a month. You only get paid once a month back in the day in France. That's the way it worked. And I still remember I was living on my friend's couch. Finally had to leave because he had a girlfriend moving in or something like that. And I, and I was very good friends with Jerome Robbins, who's the choreographer, and he was doing, uh, he had rented an apartment in Paris, but he had a maid's room that was free on, it was, I think, a seven or eight floor walk up to the yeah. maid's quarters Chambre upstairs. De <laughs> Chambre de Bonne. So I ended up, uh, he gave me the keys and I ended up going living up there. And that's where I lived while I was a cook in Paris. And I, I used to sit there and I never wrote to anybody. It was a, and I, would, I was writing all my relatives and old friends because I was so lonely by myself. But the work was so amazing that I loved it. It was really, really a fun time to be there. And I mean, don't you think now, I mean, well, not right this moment, but the last like 10 years, all these people from all over the world, like, you know, Americans and Australians and people from New Zealand are all sort of gone to Paris and they work in Paris and there's this whole sort of expat kitchen culture there, in Paris. I mean, there, there was when I was there as well. And I remember uh, because I spoke French and there would be Americans sometimes coming through asking to work for free. And I remember this one kid who said he worked at La Bernardin in New York and he was this and he was that. And the chef said, you go take care of this kid. He's going to work with you down in the pastry. I was doing pastry at the time. And I would speak to him in French. He didn't know I was American. 
And literally, I think like a couple weeks into it, I finally like I blew up at him. I'm like, did you really work at LeBron? You suck. <laughs> You're terrible at this. <laughs> and he looks at me, he goes, you speak English? I'm like, yes. Oh, geez, I forgot. Okay, whatever. Just can you please just do it right? <laughs> I was like, oh, this is terrible. But yeah, no, we used to get a lot of those people coming through and trying to... Uh, just work for free, but I wanted to. I wanted to go into talk a, a little bit about um, another place where I worked, in which you had a lot of influence, and and, that, and of course, uh, that's Le Cirque, and of course, Cyril Marchioni, who just passed. Uh, I worked there for probably two and a half, three years under Sylvain Porté as a line cook. I was the entremetier, and I was also the uh, the um, saucier for quite a while. But you obviously reviewed that restaurant, and 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 you have memories of of Cyril, and 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 probably in a different way that I do. But yes. Uh, well, you know, when I first got to New York to, to be the restaurant critic of the New York Times, uh, there was a new chef at the Cirque and everyone said, you know, you've got to you've got to go review this new chef. And, um, you know, for years, I'd been the restaurant critic of the L.A. Times. And when I went to New York, people had, would say to me, you know, will you take me to Le Cirque? Because I had this endless expense account. And I always said, no, because I'm not known there. And it was like everybody knew that they really, it was like a, a private club and they were nice to people they knew and they weren't so nice to people they didn't know. And um, so when I showed, I thought, well, I know that they've got a picture of me in the kitchen, so I'm going to have to be in disguise. And I knew they, they did exactly what, I had always heard that they'd done. I mean, I'd actually never been there before, but I'd heard for years. And, you know, it, they treated me like dirt, um, especially because I was like in the guise of a sort of Midwestern, middle-aged woman, just not the kind of person that Syria wanted in his dining room. So as a critic, you used to dress up. This is what we're getting to, right? Yes, yes. Okay. Um, and, I mean, I, I had many disguises. I mean, this was the first of the many disguises was... Right. You know, Molly Hollis, who was based on my first mother-in-law, and um, she was a, a, a very nice but timid Midwestern woman. Um, and I went with a friend of my mother's who was a, she was an acting coach, and she was the one who got me the first disguise, and she really made me practice. She wouldn't let me go out until I really knew. I mean, I knew the backstory. I knew everything about this woman. She had her own jewelry, her own credit cards, her own clothes, um, and she looked nothing at all like me. And so Claudia and I just really got treated like dirt. I mean, it's like we walk in, and in those days they were still smoking and non-smoking. We'd ask for non-smoking. They made us wait in a bar for 45 minutes with a reservation and then finally seated us in the smoking section. And when I said I didn't want to be in the smoking section, guy waiter looks around like this and he goes, do you see any seats? And I mean, it was just, it was a really miserable experience. And I went back a few times in disguise and it was always the same. And for my last visit, I didn't wear a disguise and it could not have been a more different experience. And when I walked in early from my reservation with my nephew who was working on Wall Street, who had made the reservation, he's quite elegant, and Syria parts all the waiting people and takes my hand and leads me forward and says, the King of Spain is waiting in the bar, but your table is ready. 
(laughs) (laughs) That is precious. And I said to Johnny, oh, yeah, the king of Spain is waiting in the bar. And Johnny turns around and he goes, that is the king of Spain. (laughs) He is waiting in the bar. And then they dance around the table and Sirio says, can I make a meal for you? And, you know, it's white truffles and black truffles and champagne. It's amazing. And all I did was say, you know, it's a very different restaurant depending who you are. And the brouhaha in New York was enormous. And I think it was for many reasons. One, I think people who were paying good money were tired of being treated like dirt in restaurants. They just, right. you know, I mean, you're, you're paying a lot of money. You, you want the illusion of being somebody. And it, it ruined it when that didn't happen. But I think on top of it, it was like I was announcing that I was a restaurant critic of the New York Times who was on the side of the diner. And I think up until then, there'd always been this sort of notion of the critic was kind of, you know, on the side of of the restaurateur. And I thought, you know, it's the people who were going out to eat who were paying my, they're paying my salary and, you know, I'm writing for them. Well, you were you were extremely influential, and I think I mean your 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 history, your background, coming from California, coming from Berkeley, and the way you got into this. I read that whole your whole story about that, which I think is absolutely amazing. But what what I found really really funny is finally when I became a chef, you reviewed me twice. I think once at La Fourchette and once at Windows in the World. But at, uh, if I remember specifically at La Fourchette, when you reviewed me, you, you reviewed the chicken and I was in the kitchen going, this is going to be great because my food cost is going to be wonderful because everybody, when they would read your, your reviews, everybody would come in and order those dishes that you talked about. And it was like, this is so funny, but, and, and then obviously it would, it would, you know, things would carry on and it would become back to normal. But when you did get reviewed, you'd always got that influx of the dishes that you talked about, which I thought was so funny how people would literally sit at the table with the review and look at the menu and order. He's like, you couldn't take it off the menu once you mentioned it. You know, nobody has ever told me that before. Oh, really? I've never even oh, thought a... about that. You know? Oh, absolutely. Oh no, and and you know, the chicken is the best food cost on my usually on a menu, right? When you do, and, except for the pasta. Well, except for the pasta, I guess. Maybe maybe, maybe that was it. But, but I, I do remember that it was very funny. It's like, oh well, we got to order more of that because it's in the paper. <laughs> well, you know, but. Good chicken is hard to come by, truth be told. Exactly. No, truth be told. I'm pretty sure it was a chicken. I'd have to go back and check. But uh, yeah, no, this was so, – so you, being, being a food critic was, was a, a big part of it. So, and, and then you went to Gourmet Magazine afterwards. And, and so then was, I – yeah, and then I went to – and, you know, and I had also – when I was in L.A., I was the restaurant critic. And then after a while, I became the food editor as well. So I, it wasn't right. like I had no background in doing that because the LA Times in the 80s when I became the food editor there was the biggest food section in the country. I mean, we had a test kitchen and a photo studio. Oh, wow. Um, and it was 60 pages every week. I mean, it was huge. That's pretty amazing. That's every week putting that much material out and, and, and you know, well, keeping up with the times. It was mostly, it was mostly ads, truth be told. It was, it was a great cash cow for the newspaper. Um, so when you, uh, so did you ever, I, we, we spoke about that, the book that this guy, Tom Ronston wrote, The Most Spectacular Restaurant in the World. Did you read the book ever? 
I haven't read the book. You haven't gotten through. Okay. Well, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of books out there, but I was the chef at Cellar in the Sky. And I remember you reviewing me there, which was always one of the most uh, amazing sort of things to me thinking I was all of a sudden I was a sous chef before that was the first restaurant I was the chef at. And I was at I was at Layla, which I was the sous chef at Layla when you reviewed us when Joey Fortunato was a chef and it was Jurnier Pont's restaurant. And then I left and went to Windows on the World. But now I was just I was curious if you had, if you had um, read that book about about Windows and Cellar in the Sky because to me what happened to me when I read the book was I was 26. It was my first chef's job. I didn't know until I read this book, the history of Joe Baum. I mean, I knew he was important and he had come from all these different areas of the restaurant industry and he was really important. As a 26-year-old young kid, I just liked him because he was he was my he was like sort of my cheerleader. He loved my food and he was a funny guy and I got along with him. He was like my granddad and I was like hanging out with him and he was we were we always got along and everybody was sort of scared of him and I didn't really care and I think he liked that. But um he, hearing his history was was just to me, uh, you know, amazing. Well, see, I grew up on Joe Baum. I mean, my mother, who couldn't have cared less about food but loved restaurants, went to every, and we couldn't afford them, but she followed Joe Baum's career because he changed restaurants. I mean, he understood that restaurants are theater. And, you know, my mother was enthralled with the Forum of the Twelve Caesars and La Fonda del Sol and... Um, the Four Seasons. I mean, I remember her following the opening of the Four Seasons and we went, we couldn't afford to eat there, but we went for drinks. And then we went to Zum Zum, which was another one of his places for, to actually eat dinner um, or maybe to the automat. But um, so I knew about Joe Baum. And then I did a piece for Metropolitan Home about the, when he reopened Windows, uh, the Rainbow Room and spent some time with him. And I mean, he was an amazing guy. I mean, he really was an amazing guy. And so, you know, you talk about Cellar in the Sky. What a kind of genius idea, right? You have a restaurant that everybody goes to for the view. And then you say, okay, we're gonna take the part of the restaurant that has no view at all. And we're gonna make it so delicious that people wanna go there. I mean, it, it's like the ultimate Siberia and you turn it into this little jewel. I mean, I, I was, I mean, that was a real Joe Baum kind of idea, right? Let's just, right. let's make I, it. I was, I was lucky enough when they reopened windows, because I was there for the reopening. So I had windows in my, in my restaurant. But it faced, it faced the Veranzano Bridge, and it wasn't uptown Manhattan, which was the more coveted view. Right. Well, because I remember when it first opened, I remember it being sort of like a cellar, literally a cellar. It, it, it was, and that was when the first iteration. But after the first bombing um, in, what was it, 96? And then when we, I reopened it when it was Joe Baum and, um, and uh, David Emile and Arthur Emile who, who did the reopening. I was working under them. Well, I mean, they were, I mean, one of the other things, you know, Joe did, was seasonal food. I mean, in the 50s, nobody in America, certainly nobody in New York, was thinking about seasonal food. And the whole idea of the Four Seasons was literally, you know, why don't we use the right. bounty, the fresh food that we've got? 
Yeah, there's a, there's actually a story in the book about in the beginning when they first opened, they wanted to do. You remember this is this thing called la truite bleue, the blue trout. Oh yeah. And he wanted to have them, and they have to be alive when you get them before you right before you cook them. So he wanted them to brought up to the 107th floor alive, and half of them would die from the pressure or something bringing them up to that speed and then, or something like that. I was like, oh my gosh, this is something nobody thought about. I guess. Oh. I've never thought about that. I, I, me neither. It was in the book. I'm not. I'm not. I might, might not be recalling it the best. But one of my other great memories of Joe Baum was I remember when we were sitting there and we we're talking about the um, holiday menus for the year, Valentine's Day, and all these distant days. And 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 there was other people. The general manager like, well, we should charge more for this day, and we should charge prefix menus. And he looked at everybody and he goes. Where, why don't we just let everybody come and eat for free those days? They come here all the time. They pay. We should give back to them on that day. These people are nice. We, why are we trying to screw them on the holidays? <laughs> and I was like, you know, I, I sort of, that's true. Why, why is it that all restaurants on Valentine's Day make you have a prefix menu and make you buy a bottle of champagne and make you spend $600? And he was like, why are we doing that? Why don't we just give them the regular menu and they can spend more if they want and they don't have to spend more if they don't want. And I was like... I, I've sort of kept that philosophy when I had restaurants. I never did. I never did those gouge you on the uh, on the holiday menus because I just didn't like it. I didn't like the idea of it. Well, that's that's really. Nice. I'll tell you another great Joe Baum thing. Barbara Kafka told me this when she was consulting to Joe Baum that he would put what he called critic traps on the menus, and he they would devise dishes that only a critic would be stupid enough to order. You know, one of those things that no, no normal person would order. And that's how she said, we put them on all the menus and that's how we figured out who the critics were. You know, he said, oh anybody who ordered the, you know, snails with blue cheese, you know, we'd put a big X by their name and say, you know, watch that yeah. table. I don't know if that would work anymore today because there's so many foodies and so many people with opinions out there that I remember. I mean, I had bone marrow on my menu almost the whole time at Landmark, and we used to sell a lot of bone marrow, which back in the day, the bone marrow might have been the critic's dish. Well, that's true. That's, I mean, now people are definitely, it, it's, it's, it's a very different world now, I think. Yeah, I, I wonder what it's like being a restaurant critic these days because back in the day, I think that your voice or restaurant critic's voice held a lot a lot of uh, of clout and the good ones that really understood food but now i feel like everybody's a critic and everybody's on yelp and all these other mediums that you can get a bad review and still get around get still get around it these days well maybe not today but before all this happened yeah no i mean the the job of the critic became very different and in i think in a good way because you know it was there was a time when critics were basically just consumer reporters and they were telling you how to spend your money. And I always thought I should write reviews for the people who didn't go to the restaurants. I mean, I didn't want to tell, you know, rich people what dishes they should order. I, what I really wanted to do was try and take the people who couldn't afford to go to the restaurants to the restaurants with me and try and make the writing so delicious that, you know, people just enjoyed it. Because, you know, most people who read the, you know, the million people who read the New York Times aren't going to go to the very high-end restaurants. Um, and I always thought, you know, being a consumer reporter, that part of being a critic was kind of boring. And what's happened with the Yelp 
review thing is that those are the consumer reporters. Those are the people who are, you know, telling you this is too expensive and this has too much salt and don't order this. And it means that the burden for the people who are really critics is much bigger. They have to be good writers. They have to really know food. They have to put it in context for you. I mean, they, they have to be much better than people of my time were. Well, they got to do it. They got to do their homework, I think, is really what it comes down to. Because if they if they do misspeak or, or, or misquote an ingredient, I'm sure that it would be it would be called out immediately. It, well, yes, yes. People would be laughed at and scorned, <laughs> as they should be. As they should be. Let's hit it. Give me a vacation. Vacation. Give me a wave. Surfing. Give me a city tour. The trolley. Give me animals. The zoo. Give me some sea life. <laughs> Give me museums. Park. Give me a woo. What's that spell? San Diego. If you're happy and you know it, San Diego is the place to show it. Book your family vacation at san diego.org. Funded in part with the City of San Diego Tourism Marketing District Assessment Funds. The Home Depot wants every mom to have their own outdoor oasis this Mother's Day. Whether that be a new space to relax or a beautiful garden upgrade, at the Home Depot, you can give mom a gift that's as unique as she is with a stylish and comfortable place to entertain or relax for the mom who does it all. And with convenient delivery, you won't have to stress over getting it to her either. Looking to step up your Mother's Day flowers for the mom who's great with gardening? Let mom's green thumb do some digging with colorful flowers, pots, and premium soils to Bring out the most in our patios, walkways, and gardens with the Home Depot's Mother's Day Savings Event happening now. Get Vigoro Potting Soil, just $8.97 for strong, healthy, vibrant plants indoors and outside. Start your Mother's Day shopping and saving today by checking out the Home Depot's extensive selection online at homedepot.com or directly in-store near you with convenient pickup and delivery options. See homedepot.com slash delivery for details. The Home Depot, how doers get more done. This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. So one last thing. I mean, uh, so obviously, you know, we're, we're in the midst right now of, of, of this lockdown, and I think restaurants are suffering uh, terribly. Uh, I can't imagine the amount of people that are out of work right now and, and, and so on and so forth. But uh, And I'm sure you've gotten this question a million times because I certainly have, is like, what are the restaurants going to look like when this is all over? I, I'm... I sort of shrug my shoulders. I have, I have no idea where things are going to go, where they're going to land. I'm not sure. But what do you, what is your what is your take? 
Um, you know, I think we're going to lose a lot of restaurants, but I also think that, you know, when this is all over, we will have rethought how important restaurants are. I mean, I think people are really missing restaurants and understanding what it is that they love about restaurants, and it's much more than food. I mean, they love being in those rooms. Um, I think that, you know, chefs and restaurateurs are going to rethink um, what they want their restaurants to be. Um, I think um, you're probably going to see a real generational change where, uh, you know, young people are, I think they're dying to go back and, um, you know, I, don't, I think they're willing to risk sitting across a bar from a bartender. Um, whereas I think older people are going to be much slower to go back to restaurants. So I think you're going to see a real shift in clientele, um, which has real implications for fine dining restaurants for really, you know, I think the fine dining restaurants are going to be the ones who suffer the most, which is odd because they are probably the ones that are going to find it easier to have, you know, social distance tables. Right, right. Now, I, I, I completely agree with you about a, a lot of that. And, and mo mostly, I think, is uh, what I'm sort of, I try to look at the glass half full, and I think that there will might be some good changes out of this. And I think one of the biggest changes, as you sort of mentioned, was the respect that all of the workers that work in restaurants, the people that are the waiters, the busboys, I mean, all, all the way down to the people that are stocking the shelves at the rest at the at the grocery store and the farmers and the fishermen and the cattlemen and all of the people have just their their level, I think, in society has just gone up so much for the for the true work that they do. And I think that we, we as a society have to make sure we remember this and, and remember how important they are to the food chain and to the, to the, to our survival. I mean, you know, you, you look at a, at a, at a waiter who's immigrated from another country or whatever, or a busboy. I mean, those people are so important for us to be able to do what we want to do. And I think everybody was sort of taking everybody for granted for a little while. There. And I think the other thing is, you know, Americans are addicted to cheap food. We have the cheapest food in the world. And there are real costs with that. With that, um, and we're seeing what those costs are. Um, and you know, the environment, people's health. You know, six out of ten Americans have chronic illnesses. We've got diabetes. Um, we, you know, we're destroying the the, the air and the the land. And um, you know, I hope we come out of this with a sense that, you know, maybe you should pay more for your food and maybe you don't need 10 pairs of blue jeans, you know? Yeah, and I, I think, I think you're right. I think it's definitely, you're going to have to, I, and less food waste. I mean, food waste in this country, Tom Colicchio did that, that, that episode about, you know, food waste and you watch that and you're just sitting there with your jaw drop I'm like, Oh my gosh, this is what people are doing out there. This, there's that much waste. I mean, we, we in restaurants, if we wasted food like that, wouldn't be open for a week and then we'd closed. I mean, it wouldn't, wouldn't happen. Right. Well, and we wasted in the fields. I mean, we wasted everywhere. And, and, you know, I think we're Americans have never seen empty shelves before. You know, they go into grocery stores and we're used to getting anything we want at any time. And um, that isn't going to be happening for a while. I mean, we're seeing real disruptions in the supply chain. And I think you're right. I think, you know, we're getting a real sense of respect for the people who raise our food and how hard it is. And, um, and we should be paying them what they're worth. I also, one of the other things that I, I'm hoping comes out of all of this, uh, that that's all the, all that's going on is I, I, I was about two years ago, 
uh, I was in uh, Sicily and I was down there doing a thing in San Vito Capo, you, whatever. I was there for about a week. And, you know, when you're in Italy, you drive around everybody's got a little plot of land behind their house. They got some lettuces growing. They got some tomatoes. And then I remember coming back to America and I came out to Long Island because my son was at a baseball tournament. And I was determined to be like, okay, I'm not eating sandwiches from delis with all the, you know, those meats with the nitrates in them and all these. I, I want to try to, I'm going to, I'm going to live healthy. I'm going to pretend like I'm still in Italy and I'm eating really healthy. I drove around and I drove around and I drove around. First of all, it was hard for me to find real food to buy. I mean, even, even the grocery store, it was hard, you know, everything's processed and whatnot. But the one thing that struck me was driving around Long Island. It was a mid, mid Island, I think they call it. All these big houses, all these homes and big green lawns and big green lawns and big green lawns. Like, so if you think about it, if every one of those people grew a little bit of lettuce, grew a couple tomatoes, they wouldn't have the gas to go to the store to buy those things. It's just about some seeds and putting it in the ground and watching and watering it. It's basically free food if you think about it. And, and when you grow lettuce, it just comes up. And, and I was like, you know, I'm hoping that people kind of get the, the, get the, the, the presence of mind as, you know, this beautiful lawn in my front yard could actually be feeding my family. Well, you know, Angelo Pellegrini, 1948, wrote An Unprejudiced Palette, and that's what he said. Tear up your lawns. That's a waste. Grow food. And the amount of money people spend to, to, to manicure their lawns and make sure there's no certain grasses, I'm like, oh, my gosh, you could have probably grown all of your tomato sauce for the winter <laughs> on that plot of land. Not to yes. mention the fertilizer runs off into the water, and they're, they're in... Uh, on Long Island, you've got a real problem with all the people who are trying to do aquaculture with the runoff from the fertilizer for the lawns. Well, look, I think that, uh, you know, if, if we can if we can just hopefully look at the glass half full and just maybe, you know, you being a, b a big voice in this industry and, and reminding people that uh, when this is all over, that we need to take care of the planet, we need to take care of each other. It's like it's something we all, all, all need to sort of just be mindful of, be front of mind when this is over, because uh, who knows when it's going to be over. But for now, I'm doing my podcast from my, 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 my home and, uh, and not in a studio, but it's, we're all finding ways to make things work. And I'm, 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 you know, thankful for the, you know, the innovation, I think, uh, and, and, and learning new things. Yeah, me too. I mean, I'm, I'm working on a documentary about what this is all doing to the food landscape, and I'm doing it from my home. Uh, right. on zoom. I mean, it's crazy, but. <laughs> oh, well, that's, that's great. I love that you're, you're still, you're still take, helping take care of the world and getting, getting that kind of a word out. I was, I was talking to a fellow colleague on the food network the other day and they're shooting their show, the kitchen from their own homes. And he's like, wow, this is difficult. You got to set up these cameras. You got to do all the prep. You got to clean up. You got like, we, when we're in a studio shooting TV shows, well, you've seen it. You've been there. You've done them, right? There's a PA. There's the this. There's the that. But now we're doing everything ourselves. And it's kind of great. I mean, I feel like I'm learning so much. You know, I'm reaching out to people all over the country. I'm talking to fishermen and farmers and ranchers and dairy people and chefs. And, you know, I mean, it's like every day I learn a hundred new things and try to figure out how to do it all myself. But speaking of fishermen, have you, have you talked to anybody over at green wave about the, uh, the kelp production? I am in love with Bren. I mean, Bren Smith is one of my big heroes. Yes. I've so you, you, you read his book. I, I have. Called? Yeah, Eat uh, like a fish. Eat like a fish. Yes. Oh, yes. That, that book just moved me 
It was amazing. And, and, you know, actually, I spent a whole day with Melissa Clark after I read that book because she was going to do an article about kelp, and she did it already a while ago. We spent a whole day in her kitchen just making recipes and messing around with kelp, but nothing in the, you know, nothing like Chinese or Japanese. It was all like we did, uh, we did like a beans and escarole, but we took the escarole out and we used kelp. We did a roast chicken where I took carrots, onions, celery, laid the whole bottom of the pan, put a chicken on top of it, and then covered it also in kelp and roasted it. It was so good. It was really amazing. Do you know what he's doing now, actually? They're making face masks out of kelp. Oh, really? The people who are making straws out of kelp have pivoted to make face masks out of kelp. Really? Yeah, because I've been I follow them on Instagram, a company called Lollyware. I think they're they they do all, all make all this stuff out of kelp. Oh well, I'm, you're right. You're 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 on the pulse. You know you know what's going down. Uh, no, I love I, it. I, I he he is he is truly a hero, Brent. I mean, he's just wonderful. You know what he right. said about kelp? He said, you know, the problem was that everybody was trying to cook it were fish cooks, and they don't know anything about vegetables. He said, you know, uh, you know, once you've got chefs who were not just you know devoted to fish people who really knew how to work with vegetables suddenly they were making delicious things out of kelp yeah no it's it's i think it's 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 basically as i i say sometimes i think kelp is the new kale and i think it's definitely it's it's worthy of that spot i mean as you know it can be used as fertilizer you can cook with it you can feed it to i mean it's it's so it's so versatile and so good for the planet and the ocean yeah exactly so here we go kelp all the way ruth thank you so much for for doing this thank this you is for just being making my, me miss podcast. you more <laughs> well you know we we tried to we tried lunch dates what three or four times and never happened and this is i i just told this to somebody else too i said you know when when i'm not gonna let life get in the way of my lunch dates anymore when this gets back to normal because they're too important i agree i agree so lunch soon lunch soon ruth thank you so much love you love you too to show it. Book your family vacation at san diego.org. Funded in part with the City of San Diego Tourism Marketing District Assessment Funds. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited time 2% cash back on purchases and pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. 
Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride-or-die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply.